0: How much do we know about the Cold War? We'll find that actually the Cold War wasn't so cold. There was a real conflict. Do we have the full picture?
1: It's often from the North's perspective. We want to get the story right. We've just got to include the Global South.
2: Global South or the Third
0: World? This is the secret struggle for Cold War dominance. A podcast that brings stories he was a man without a country facts
2: also make provided cuban intelligence and historical
0: background these were places where stakes were too high of the secret and untold cold war hello episode three the best kept secret Welcome to The Secret Struggle for Cold War Dominance, a podcast that investigates how the East and the West struggled for dominance in a very hot Cold War. In this episode, we'll scan the skies and oceans for signals. And we'll start at a place like this. Imagine one of the most pristine islands in the world with beautiful beaches, lovely climate, untouched nature. The Chagos Islands, or archipelago, lies in the Indian Ocean. It's a part of Mauritius, close to the Maldives and the Seychelles. You get the picture. Over the long course of its history, it belonged to the Portuguese, then the French, the Brits, and in 1968, Mauritius became fully independent. However, not the Chagos archipelago. Why? The Brits separated the Chagos Islands from Mauritius in order to form the British Indian Ocean Territory, or in short, the Bayot, that consists of over a thousand islands, the largest one called Diego Garcia. And the reason for this was simple, its location, its strategic location. Here is the backstory. After World War II, there was a rush for decolonization. Many countries in Asia and Africa wanted to get rid of foreign bases on their territory. And so in the 1950s and 60s, American and British signals intelligence experts, who gather information from technologies, phone calls, fiber optic lines and satellites, they were essentially getting evicted from all these places and needed to find a new safe space for their operation. So in 1961, the two agencies that focus on signals intelligence, the British GCHQ and the American NSA, went on an island hunt. And decided on the island of Diego Garcia. The only thing standing in the way of their plan was a small population of almost 2,000 locals
3: they were quite forcibly, if not violently, removed from the island in a trade-off essentially. There's stories of, you know, the maiming dogs and literally forcing people to flee.
0: This island of Diego Garcia was chosen to become this refugee camp for spies from other parts of the world, creating here a military base and a communication signals intelligence station.
1: They paid compensation to um, another island where the the inhabitants were resettled, but of course the money sort of disappeared and never reached the people who'd been displaced, who had been made refugees.
2: Do we know where it disappeared to? I
1: think it... (laughs) The documents suggest it vanished into the pockets of various people in the local government, but um, I think that's a bit of a mystery.
3: The people were never really reimbursed, yes? And and actually, I think the fight still does continue in certain areas of the world to to kind of re-inhabit these populations.
0: Yes, the fight is still ongoing. In fact, a recent UN ruling of 2019 states that this separation of the Chagos Islands from Mauritius was illegal and that the UK should leave the island. However, no sign of intelligence agencies pulling out and local inhabitants going back in to the island just yet. In today's episode, we'll talk about signals intelligence and its connection to politics.
1: What this base could be used for. The veto was vetoed.
0: (laughs) Decolonization and the Cold War
3: intelligence was useful to kind of reduce the the trauma of decolonization.
0: We'll talk about its negatives, but also positive effects.
1: And One of the main roles of GCHQ was to look out for possible assassination attempts.
0: What do signals intelligence stations look like?
1: These stations are often rather surreal.
0: How do they operate?
3: There's copper cables running all over the ocean floor across the world.
0: And what is life like at these stations?
1: It's remarkable how hidden signals intelligence remained during the Cold War. Stay with us.
0: Welcome to the Secret Struggle for Cold War Dominance podcast. I am Katarina Urban-Richterova. Realizing the costs at which signals intelligence was gathered, changes our understanding of the impact of espionage over border, boundaries, and even fates of entire populations. Claim the two authors, historians and intelligence scholars, I'm talking to today. Professor Richard Aldrich.
1: Hi, I'm Richard Aldrich. I work at the University of Warwick.
0: Famous for his groundbreaking book on the GCHQ. And Sarah Mainwaring. I'm
3: also at Warwick um, and I'm just finishing a project on Anglo-American encryption policies.
0: They're both experts in the field of signals intelligence. We spoke in February this year, My live, face to face. And then in July, yeah. via the standard COVID safe channels of the internet. There? Yes. And, uh, and you will hear snippets of both these interviews. Is, is it
1: recording? Yes, recording. It's recording. Oh, fantastic.
0: Now, let's go back to that serene island of Diego Garcia in the Indian Ocean, covered by satellites, buildings, and tapping gadgets. You could have found all the information about the case and the UN ruling in the press last year. However, there is also a secret angle to the story. Historians Sarah Mainwaring and Richard Aldridge found secret archive material about the Diego Garcia station that was supposed to have been kept secret forever.
3: The partnership in intelligence between the UK and the US is historic. We know a lot about it. But I'd never seen documents that just laid it bare quite so clearly.
0: Documents naming the setup of this station a priority for both the UK and the US. And more specifically, tasks were also divided. The U.S. would pay for the facility, it would build the buildings, set up satellites and gadgets, and the U.K. would take care of the sanitizing of the island, or in fact of the resettling of the local population, officially and financially, leaving the U.S. out of this process entirely.
1: Essentially, the the money that the United States paid to Britain for this base facilities was hidden. By deducting it from the money which Britain owed the United States for help with its nuclear weapons program, mm-hmm.
0: so in fact the US had clean hands, uh, or it pretended it it had nothing to do with the station. Yes.
1: Yes, the Britain was to some extent used as a cutout. The other piece of sneaky activity was that when British bases were offered to the United States, it was normal to assure the British Parliament that there was some kind of veto over what this base could be used for. And this was effectively, the veto was vetoed. (laughs) The um, the veto was removed secretly because although Parliament was told, the British Parliament was told, Britain had a veto over the use of this base, the British Prime Minister wrote secretly to Richard Nixon saying the veto would never be used.
0: Professor Richard Aldridge actually claims this was one of the most secret documents between the US and the UK.
1: The United States was especially anxious to avoid any taint of colonialism because the The very origins of the United States is really rooted in an anti-colonial revolution. Um, They were very anxious about being seen to establish a colonial territory, and so Britain was used effectively as a proxy for the United States.
0: Okay, just to make sure we're all on the same page, this is what we mean when talking about signals intelligence. Intelligence agencies gather or collect information either through or thanks to humans, that's what we call humant, we have techint, intelligence gathered through different technology, and then we have sigint, intelligence collected from all kinds of signals.
3: So signals intelligence is the general term used for the collection of intelligence from communications lines. So that can mean everything from phone lines to fiber optic lines. Um, Some people use it to refer to satellites, but really what we're talking about is technical intelligence. And I think over the last kind of 30, 40 years, a number of people have kind of identified its growing importance because as the world becomes more connected to these lines, as we use, you know, the Internet for everything, more information is now on these communication systems.
0: The latest research of Mainwaring and Aldridge reveals that the British have a pretty long history of settling exotic islands and territories across the globe for the purposes of signals intelligence. Ascension Island in the Atlantic is one example, as is Cyprus.
1: Cyprus was vital because it was essentially a refugee camp for British spies being and American spies being thrown out of other places in the region. So British had spying bases. The British had spying bases in Egypt, in Jordan, in Iraq, in many other places. And, and as these countries reject the British presence, essentially Cyprus is the place that they go to. Cyprus has a sort of second life because in the 21st century, many of the internet cables that connect the countries in the Middle East and and in the Mediterranean run past Cyprus. And this gives Cyprus almost a second lease of life as an access point for intelligence.
2: How big is it in terms of the whole site?
3: Um, So I think uh, the UK still owns about 90 miles. It's not a small amount of of territory. But what's interesting um, is that, you know, there there are formal border checks and everything. So you do have to produce passports to kind of even enter or approach the military base. And I think as a British person, that's quite interesting because you wouldn't consider uh, Britain as having those kind of territories, but we clearly still do. Everyone kind of knows about it. You can sort of, you know, go on an exploration of, of the Cypriot island for other kind of purposes, and it's literally just there. So that is certainly interesting about Cyprus, uh, because so many Brits go on holiday there. But very few of them are probably aware of just how important the island has been and will continue to be.
2: Then you name Hong Kong as the most important outpost in Asia. Why is that? What kind of information actually did, uh, did the post in uh, Hong Kong provide? Do we have any concrete information?
1: So Hong Kong was extremely important in terms of listening to China really because it was so close. So what this allows you to do is to listen to quite a lot of radio communications, which the Chinese are perhaps not putting into code because they think they're only traveling over a relatively short range. Don't bother to encode them. The other thing that Hong Kong was useful for was very large numbers of refugees, defectors were pouring into Hong Kong, and these were routinely debriefed. Um, You might say interrogated. Uh, They proved to be um, an extraordinary source of what was going on in China, because China was a closed society. It was so difficult to find out what was going on. Even very basic things about how much food was being produced. Were people hungry? Were people well-fed? Were people happy? Were people sad? These things were quite difficult to find out.
2: And then uh, when the 100-year lease on new territories expired in 1997, where did these signal stations go next?
1: When the lease was expiring, the Americans were getting very excited. They said, well, we must find a way of staying, keeping our bases on in Hong Kong. Can we just not just have a little bit of territory? Um, actually, most of these stations moved to Australia, which you know has a kind of a triple layer of colonialism in a sense Mm -hmm. because the you know the americans are are using the british as proxies and and, and it's not just the british it's the british commonwealth that's being used as proxies so there's a multi-layered imperialism going on here potentially
3: so
2: right now it's all in australia
3: um, it's either there or I would actually suggest it's actually in the sky. So a lot of these technologies, which used to be dependent on physical stations, are now in satellites. They're either under the ocean uh, going through fiber optic cables or they're, you know, literally with the stars. Um, and I think that's another interesting aspect about these kind of issues is that, you know, people think of them as disappearing, as waning, as reducing. But actually, just as people used to use AOL dial-up technologies and everyone now uses fiber optic, you know, these can capabilities change with that too. So I think these technologies always reinvent themselves, maybe as society develops.
2: Then I think in your paper you say a cloud is always a uh, a building with a few storages, right? Um, And in your paper, you also make the point that foreign bases, intelligence sites, operations were uh, a sign of uh, imperialism in the past, but you're saying it's not in the past. It's also right now, currently, and possibly in the future, as currently the Secret Services are exploring the world's oceans. Mm -hmm. How big of a topic is this? Are the oceans really underlined mind with uh, fiber
3: optics? Um, I think they are. Um, If you looked at the map of the internet now, it would be quite a mundane infrastructure of great... Cables of um, things going underwater, going through the coral reefs, all that kind of thing. But what's perhaps most interesting, and we don't have space to talk about it in the paper, is that it's not actually the government agencies who are doing most of this kind of interception or monitoring now. I would venture to suggest it's probably the companies who own this infrastructure. I mean, 20, 30 years ago, governments may have owned most of this stuff, but these days I think it's companies, it's it's global corporations who have so much of these power and capabilities now, if only because it's so expensive. And governments just don't have that kind of resource so I mean these are broader questions than the ones we talk about but the so-called exploitation of the oceans for intelligence is certainly a big topic.
0: Okay let's go from the broader perspective and discussion about signals intelligence stations to the very basic questions like what these stations actually look like.
1: These stations are often rather surreal they're collecting signals from a very long way away quite often and so they can have very kind of baroque structures pylons metal poles dishes they look a bit like a space station might look on mars and um it's possible to hide these in quite a small space so you know edward snowden explained how some of these stations were hidden inside embassies or on the roofs of buildings but when space is available quite often they spill out over dozens of acres, um, thousands of meters. They look rather like the sort of devices that NASA use, uses for studying the stars.
0: And in terms of people and uh, personnel, how, how many people can we expect on a sort of standard size uh, signals intelligence station?
1: There isn't really a standard size. There are small ones and big ones, but places like Diego Garcia, places like Cyprus might well have over a thousand people working on signals intelligence and other kinds of surveillance.
3: But I think when you think about people working on these stations, um, it's not always people sitting there in the image of Bletchley Park, like literally writing down codes and, and intercepting that way. Um, I think quite often on these kind of bigger stations, there'll be more engineers than anything having to you know make sure that the buildings and the metal pylons remain physically you know, robust and kind of strong enough and that kind of thing. So there's a whole host of people working there.
0: And I know for the purposes of this research paper, you've conducted many interviews with people who've been working at different signals intelligence stations. So you know a little bit about their life and their lifestyle. So uh, do people go for sort of long-term periods to these uh, SIGINT stations? Do they take their families with them? Uh,
2: Is there really a community of people where they would have schools and uh, gatherings? Or is it more trying to keep the people to a minimum?
1: These stations varied. uh, Ascension Island, for example. Example, is quite remote. It's essentially a, a volcanic rock in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. So those postings tended to be unaccompanied. By contrast, um, Cyprus was essentially like a continuation of a British colonial presence. There was kind of a little a little England in, um, in the southeast corner of Cyprus or near Famagusta with schools and churches and all the things one might expect in a military base in Britain.
3: But I think one of the funniest conversations I ever had with someone who had been posted to Diego Garcia was that I opened the interview by, you know, describing the island from photos I'd seen as this idyllic, beautiful place and he just said well Sarah it, it, it actually isn't that nice. It really kind of made me sit up a little bit. I think it's always interesting when you do speak to these people who have who've worked on, on these um, incredible remote islands to kind of hear their perspective as well because it's often different to the one that we gather from secondary or primary sources.
0: And because we're talking about the Cold War, of course, I want to ask about using SIGINT or signals intelligence during the Cold War. Was it heavily used? Was it used as much as it is now?
3: I think there was a recognition in the early 50s and 60s of the importance of signals intelligence. So there was a real drive, I think, in the 1950s to establish some kind of formal signals intelligence structure in a a range of countries. The UK, the US are the two that are perhaps the most discussed, but it happened all across Northern Europe, I would suggest.
1: It's, It's important to say that although this intelligence collection The signals intelligence was done during the Cold War. It wasn't all Cold War intelligence. So we think of the Cold War as being about the United States spying on Russia, Russia spying on the United States and its allies. Actually, a lot of this was about the developed North spying on the South. And many of these bases were used for precisely these purposes. Russian communications and Chinese communications were difficult to break. But the communications of the many countries in the global South were relatively easy. And so the West scooped these up, and it was a kind of continuation of colonialism.
0: After Edward Snowden, obviously, there's been sort of this bad aftertaste to signals intelligence. What was it perceived like maybe during the Cold War? Did the general public know anything about it? Was it aware of these interceptions, in
3: fact? I would suggest they didn't. At least the general public were less aware of the systems precisely because 50, 40 years ago, very few people owned computers in the way that they do today. So computing in the 60s was quite expensive. Um, It was also quite cumbersome. So I think in terms of their appreciation of being affected by it, I think it would have been different. And again, if, I think if you look at the way they collect the information 40 years ago to today, that's reflected in that too. Um, the fact that these new technologies enabled um, different types of data to be sent in new ways, um, but also you can touch different people now. So, you know, because people are just gathering these and also amassing this this self-made data. In your
2: paper, you say the history of signals intelligence is ignored in favor of a narrative composed of human agents, because probably those are the interesting ones that we want to watch on, on TV. How common is, in fact, a debate about signals intelligence in the intelligence community?
1: Well, you're certainly right that human intelligence tends to be the thing that's celebrated on TV and also in films. So whether we're talking about, you know, Jack Bauer or James Bond or 24, all these things tend to focus on human intelligence. And really, I think in the whole history of GCHQ, Um, Until recently, there's only been one film. There was a film made in the early 1980s. But other than that, GCHQ is pretty much invisible and its activities in the Global South even more invisible. That's only really changed with the arrival of Edward Snowden in 2013.
3: Obviously, equations aren't as fun as, you know, James Bond, so you're never going to have the same kind of traction. But there's an important story to be told, I think.
0: Most of these stations were disguised as military bases. In the case of a SIGINT station that was being built in Sri Lanka, for instance, the British government debated whether or not to disclose the real mission of the station, and they decided not to in the end. Naturally, the next question that comes to mind then is, how did countries scouted for such locations welcome or perceive such bases?
1: A good example would be Cyprus, where the presence of British bases is much debated. Um, some people like the economic activity. It provides employment. Uh, other people see it as an issue of um, of colonisation. It's a focus for nationalist protests. So quite often the the local population is divided. But over time, the issue of nationalism and sovereignty has tended to result in the closure of many of these bases. That's why the few that remain are highly prized by Britain and the United States.
0: Is there a difference between what signals intelligence stations looked like
3: back in the time of the Cold War, maybe 40 years ago, and now? Um, I think the main difference would be in the the target of the signals that they're trying to access. So, as a lot more um, of the communications routes have gone both underground, so you know there's copper cables running all over the uh, the ocean floor across the world. Um, they become, you know, more focused on that. And there's a number of bases in the UK, for example, that aren't in the same category as the ones we're discussing today, but they do that. And the um, the cables come onto the shore, they come onto the beach, and then that's how they access it.
1: They do look different because during the Cold War, a lot of the focus was on collecting signals that were sent by wireless. Um so you'd have very large aerial farms. Then there's a shift to satellites, and more recently it's been about tapping into fiber optic cables. So what, what you tend to have is is actually smaller buildings and less of the kind of vast Baroque signals array. They look less less like a less like a space station and more like a factory now, perhaps.
0: Apart from the Chagos Islands, Hong Kong or Cyprus. Mainwaring and Aldridge bring stories of many other SIGINT stations around the world, like the one in Sri Lanka, a 35 million pound investment at today's prices, and almost 10 years of prep work that was only allowed to work for 5 years
1: to some extent it's a little bit like going into a betting shop you know you're putting money on horses you're trying to decide which technology is going to be important in the future because you know maybe your opponent changes their communications technology or maybe um you lose the base rights or maybe you spend a lot of money on a technology and it actually turns out that a human spy can give you the same information at a much lower cost and then maybe you become dependent on that human spy and the human spy gets caught. So there's a whole world of uncertainty here. Large amounts of money is being spent. But the, the foothold, if you like, is quite precarious.
0: The secret state, or the best-kept secret, are sometimes the terms that describe signals intelligence.
1: It's remarkable how hidden signals intelligence remained during the cold war it was essentially only exposed in the last decade of the cold war when a number of russian spies were found someone called jeffrey prime in gchq in britain what's fascinating about this is in the 1980s when the story of cold war signals intelligence started to come out there was a realization that many of these things were hiding in plain sight these stations were so big, the antenna were so baroque. There was just a surprise that these things had stayed secret for about 40 years from the end of the Second World War. And it, it, it's, it's, it's puzzling, it's genuinely puzzling to to kind of think, why were these huge things, which are actually quite difficult to hide, kind of ignored by historians, political scientists, even the general public for decades? Really, it's only in the last five to 10 years of the Cold War does the public become aware of this, what is really the most important kind of Cold War espionage.
0: Edward Snowden, a former US contractor who disclosed huge amounts of espionage information about the US spying on its enemies and friends, put Signal's intelligence in the spotlight in the year 2013. And since then it has had a bad rap. Mainwaring and Aldrich don't shy away from calling the UK and the US. sign stations of the Cold War a fixer employed to prolong the existence of empire, or a way to gain influence and dominance over the global South, meaning Africa, Asia, and Latin America, and frankly speak about an infringement on external territories. However, they also include stories that showed the other face of Signal's intelligence stations and their work. Like that of a station in Iraq, which helped prevent an assassination of the King of Jordan in the late 1950s.
1: One of the interesting things we've discovered recently is that in the 1980s, Downing Street wrote to GCHQ to thank them for all the work they'd done on counter-terrorism during a visit by the Queen to Jordan. One of the main roles of GCHQ was to look out for possible assassination attempts.
3: We talk a lot about code breaking, but these agencies also make a lot of codes that keep the country safe as well. So when our own diplomats are travelling abroad or when they're operating in certain things, or even something like our nuclear code systems, these agencies also do that. So I think there's a positive news story there to be told.
1: The other positive was war warning. So essentially, signals intelligence is about listening to your enemy to make sure they're not about to attack you. So you could argue signals intelligence had a calming effect on the international system. It gave the various countries reassurance that nobody was planning to do something difficult or dangerous.
0: That was Sarah Mainwaring and Professor Richard Aldridge. You can read their full article in the special issue of the International History Review under the title The Secret Empire of Signals Intelligence, GCHQ and the Persistence of the Colonial Presence. So that was episode 3 of our Secret Struggle for Cold War Dominance podcast. If you like our podcast and want more of it, please go to any of the popular podcasting platforms like iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts or SoundCloud. Find us there under the name The Secret Struggle for Cold War Dominance And then hit the plus, subscribe or add button so that you get the latest episode of the podcast as soon as it's out. We've already published two episodes, which if you haven't heard, I suggest you go back and listen to. In August, we're going to take a short academic break and we'll be back with episodes four and five in September. In the meantime, though, we'll be publishing a lot of extra material that didn't make it into the podcast, so please watch out for it on Twitter or Facebook. This podcast is created and produced independently. Interviews, editing, sound design and all the rest of it is done by me, Katerina Urban-Richterova. The idea for the podcast was conceived by Dr. Daniela Richterova and myself. We would like to thank the Warg Institute of Advanced Study for their contribution to the project. If you have any questions, comments or feedback regarding this podcast, the special issue or any of the articles, please email us at Dominance in one word, at gmail.com. If you like the podcast or this episode... Share it or write us so that more people can find out about the hidden stories of the Cold War. Before we go, a huge thank you to Sarah Mainwaring and Professor Richard Aldrich for finding the time to talk to me. And of course, thank you for listening to the Secret Struggle for Cold War Dominance podcast. And to lighten things up a bit at the end, here is our regular nugget of wisdom tested by history and time.
1: We learnt sometimes how they were punished. So somebody might have been serving in Cyprus or Malaya for 20 years. They'd become quite accustomed to nice warm temperatures. I spoke to one person who did something their boss disapproved of and he was put on a plane to Iceland the next day. (laughs) What a punishment. eh? That's a punishment. (laughs)